Interviews or interrogations? Potato, tomato, whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, they were short, on the shorter length. Uh, the longest one was 18 minutes. So I didn't go. I, I won't say I, uh, I didn't go overboard because that would be wrong. Uh, but it wasn't like a bunch of hour long interviews. It was all these kind of shorter type interviews trying to get to the point and just kind of like summarize what each vendor or person I was talking to is up to or what they wanted to talk about. Sort of a who are you and how dare you kind of conversation? Yeah, very accusatory. I made sure to put them in their place immediately uh, by refusing to let them sit. And or speak, probably. Just more of a talking at period. Yeah, time. a lot of pointing and uh, angry words, some swearing. It may have been physical at one point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can see it in my head. Yeah, and uh, you know, I realized that I can electrify a microphone, so when they try to talk, it shocks them. I, you know, it was really a very comfortable experience for me, <laughs> and that's really what matters. I think so. Everybody else is just a figment of my imagination, right? Like you, I'm actually just talking to myself. Oh, in that case, there is a lot more wrong with you than I thought. <laughs> I suppose, and, and you're probably <laughs> not wrong. Um, let's get into it. Hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lover Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. I'm a real human person with feelings, dreams, transistors, ambitions. Well, I mean, not, no, not transistors. Definitely, I do not have those. I meant tendons. I have tendons like a normal person, and I use them to move. I don't have pistons because that would be strange. With me is Chris, who is also here. How you doing, Chris? So you also lied about the ambitions, right? Having them? I mean, yeah. I think I have ambitions. I'm not going to like place a judgment on whether they're good or not, but I certainly have them. I mean, yeah, I guess really it doesn't matter as long as they exist. It's something driving you forward. Like if your ambition is to have six cookies instead of just five, that's, that's a goal you've set for yourself. And gosh darn it, you're going to achieve it. That is a goal I can definitely accomplish. Although at the moment, there's a severe lack of cookies in the house. Do we need to make a hard pivot in the podcast and just turn it into cookie talk? <laughs> Tell me about your favorite chocolate chip cookie recipe, Chris. Like what what do you do to make them well actually what what type do you prefer? Do you like them thin and crispy? Are you more like a cakey dough? Like how do you go when it comes to to a good chocolate chip cookie? I mean, the correct answer is whatever makes it the worst for you. <laughs> However, you and can pack more butter and sugar per uh square centimeter is really what makes it what makes it the best ideally broken up and mixed into a super duper rich ice cream <laughs> more of a topping really where you, well, just, you can mix it in you can mix it in i suppose that's that's more of a blizzard perhaps you're saying that like it's a bad thing i am not Tread saying lightly, it like it's a bad thing i will say that the last time i ate a blizzard i did not feel right for days <laughs> Yeah, 
Yeah, that is that's a true story. The last time I had one of those, I was definitely in the part of my 30s where I still felt hope. <laughs> well, I can tell you, you know, and you've joined me in the world of the 40s. Uh, at that point, eating something like a milkshake or uh, or a fribble, if you're if you like friendly <sighs> stuff, uh, is is a recipe oh, wow. for disaster and just a complete loss of all hope. I am fairly certain that my brain had erased the concept and word fribble until you just said it right now. <laughs> you know, I, I lament the fact that Friendly's has basically dissolved into nothing. I think there's still a few locations open, but... They're holding on for dear life, but yeah, the corporate mismanagement has been um, frightening yet impressive to watch from afar. Yes. I, I watched a whole video about the rise of Friendly's, and it was incredible how... They didn't franchise. It was all like company owned for a really long time. The quality was high. The food was good. And then they sold Friendlies to, I think, a private equity firm or something. And immediately everything went to shit. <laughs> like, how fast can we ruin this? The answer is pretty fast. To, pretty fast. All you have to do is sell it to private equity. <sighs> <sighs> Let's talk about anyway. some something else. <laughs> okay. So I went to KubeCon last week. Actually, it's this week. We're recording early. Uh, <gasps> <laughs> a little peek behind the curtain for everybody. Uh, but yes, I went to KubeCon for a grand total of two days. And uh, it was KubeCon Cloud Native Con 2023 in Chicago, which... For our purposes, I will just refer to it as KubeCon going forward. If you want to expand the whole title in your mind, have fun. Don't. 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 No, 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 no. Veto. That's dumb. <laughs> That's a dumb name. I understand why that they, they have to strike. Why did they name the conference twice? They had to strike a balance between the fact that it's put on by the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, the CNCF. Right. But the basic reason that the CNCF existed for its first five years was Kubernetes. That's becoming less true over time, but right. that's why it has two names and it shouldn't. We'll get to that later. Okay. So while I was there, I met with a ton of vendors. I, I walked the expo floor as one does, attended zero keynotes or sessions and brought home a relatively tame amount of swag. I think wow. I did well. Well, it's actually very unlike you as we've discussed. <laughs> Usually I bring an extra suitcase. Just walk around the expo floor saying, fill it. And I How give was the conference that, Oh, it was fine. I only got one key to the city. <laughs> I know. Right. Uh, you'll be happy to know that I used your email address for my badge. So expect a ton of email in the next two to three weeks. Something to look forward to, truly. Just, I'm trying, it's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> um, so the actual conference was held in the McCormick Place West building of Chicago, which is right by the river, uh, right by the lake, I should say. Lake Michigan's right there. And then, also, on the other side is the river. Is that, what is that? It's not the Charles River. 
I forget which river it is, but it's there. And Let's you have to go cross with the it a Chicago lot. River. Oh, that, that could be it. That actually sounds reasonable. Um, there were about 7,000 attendees there. Early estimates were 10,000. Then that got scaled back a little bit, you know, and it was, it wasn't super crowded, which was nice. Uh, overall, the energy seemed fine. It was fine. I'm fine. How are you? The conference food was terrible. As expected. Now, I will say the I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the lunch. It was a bad lunch. It was an awful bag lunch. All bag lunches usually are. The breakfast was actually pretty decent. It was a lot of pastries, uh, but the pastries were actually pretty good. And they did like a. What they call they called the cube crawl of the ex of the sponsor area uh, Tuesday night and the little not quite dinner size things that they put out were actually pretty decent. So I basically I'm just complaining about the lunch. It was terrible. I also went out to dinner on Tuesday night um, and we went to the Billy Goat Tavern of Chicago. Um, mm -hmm. It is both overrated and kind of gross. So if you happen to be going to Chicago, just skip that one. You don't. So it depends on a couple of things. First of all, you didn't go during baseball season, which no immediate problem. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, it's about Chicago. Stop it. Um, and second, it's actually a chain these days. So there's no guarantee you went to the actual original one. As far as I could tell, it felt original in that the inside of the location didn't look like it had been updated since the 1960s. I don't remember. Was there neon in the windows? I don't think so. Yeah, you probably didn't go to the original. I don't know, man. My point is, <clears throat> I was looking forward to a really good dinner. And what I oh, got yeah, then, was... And you, you made a terrible mistake. Yeah. What I got was um, a middling at best hamburger and bag of chips. Ooh, middling at best. That's a good name for my autobiography. <laughs> yes. Um Wow, so I still have yet to talk about anything having to do with the actual conference. Good for me. Uh, while I was there, I was attending as a media slash analyst person, which meant that instead of getting a ton of emails after the conference, I got a ton of emails before the conference from every, from every PR firm that had a vendor interested in pitching me something. And I did the very silly thing of actually responding to some of those emails. I said, yes, I would love to talk to your person and record them for 15 minutes for a podcast. And every single person that I said yes to immediately filled my calendar up with appointments. Sounds. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Um, so I ended up doing 14 of these short 15 minute interviews over the course of two days and also did a tech field day recording for gestalt it because oh, nice why not it's just sort of a one-off just because you were there kind of thing uh, i was there and so was nigel polton uh if you are familiar with him he's uh 
a Docker Kubernetes guy, and then also Justin Warren from Pivot9 was there. Uh, and Steven said, let's record a podcast. I have cameras and you have 30 minutes. <laughs> so we did. Uh, it's all about WebAssembly. Keep an eye out for it. It was a very interesting conversation. Lots of strong opinions. And then there was me. <laughs> and I also managed to walk around the expo floor, the sponsorship hall for a decent amount of time and look at what interesting vendors were out there. So that's what I'm going to focus on. The coolest vendors that I talked to while I was at the conference. Ready? I mean, I thought we were going to criticize all of Chicago's restaurants, but I guess we can do this instead. Uh, the list got too long. <laughs> Man, I'm not going to be allowed back into Chicago anytime soon. <laughs> uh, also, the Cubs suck and the Bears are awful. Those are teams from Chicago, right? I am impressed that you got that on the first try. Woo! <laughs> All right. So the first cool vendor that I got a chance to talk to, this was during one of the interviews that I did, uh, but I'd actually heard about them before. It was called Acorn Labs. They are an open source project and a company, uh, and their goal is to simplify Kubernetes deployments by creating a... Uh, a single artifact for your deployments, as opposed to these collections of different YAML deployment artifacts that typically Kubernetes uh, deployments work as, because there's not really the concept of an application in Kubernetes. There's a whole bunch of components that can make up an application. So what Acorn's trying to do is say, you know, we are just gonna take all those different things and package them up as a single thing that's versioned and stored in a repository. And when you want to deploy that thing, they call it an acorn uh, because it's the seed out of which things grow, right? Uh, you can just deploy that acorn and you can deploy it wherever there's Kubernetes, basically. And they are the middleware between that acorn and what actually gets deployed. Okay, so the infrastructure itself around Kubernetes is external to this. Correct. So it presumes if you're running the open source version that you have a Kubernetes cluster somewhere and that you've given what's running Acorn permissions to deploy things into that Kubernetes uh, cluster. Got it. So this is really for application type teams to simplify their necessary interactions with the guts of Kubernetes? To a certain degree. And it could also be Acorn could be run by the platform team at an organization and just say, when you want to package up your applications, use this format, and then we will manage the clusters and present you with the Acorn interface. Got it. Also, during the conference, they announced Acorn Cloud, which is their hosted version of this. It has a free tier and, of course, a paid tier, right? This is how they're going to ostensibly make money. But the free tier is actually pretty cool. You just sign up with GitHub. So you just use your GitHub account, which like pretty much everybody has. And they have a bunch of example projects you can spin up or you can bring your own acorns. And they basically give you a two hour sandbox to spin up any project you want. So it'll keep it running for two hours. And there's some limitations on how big the Docker images can be and how much storage right. you can use. But essentially, you have that sandbox to mess around with and it gives you public endpoints. So if you're creating a, like a web server or something, it'll actually give you a usable public endpoint that you can access 
to check your web server. Is it working properly? That was pretty neat. Oh, so basically the idea there is you test it for two hours, make sure everything works. And if it's good, then you pivot and produce and and, uh, dump it into production. Uh, Possibly. The other use case that they talked about was if you want to demonstrate something for someone else or let them test drive it, you can create an instance on their cloud and then share it using a link. And when someone goes to that link, it will deploy the acorn for them in the sandbox and then they can test drive whatever the thing is. Uh, So what they were, the example he gave is if you were writing an open source project on GitHub and you wanted to make it really easy for people to test drive your application, you could include an acorn link in the documentation that would take you right to acorn cloud and spin up this sandbox environment and someone could try out your application without having to download the binary and make sure they have all the dependencies and all that kind of jazz right cool that's pretty neat i was like this is a cool project um that's acorn the next one is teleport and teleport is an open source project and a company, and their goal is to provide remote access to servers, Kubernetes clusters, and databases, which you would think is a solved problem, and it's not. If I could compare them to other products that are out there, someone might have heard of uh, HashiCorp Boundary, uh, StrongDM, or TailScale, all trying to solve this in their own way. Um, But basically, the idea is, I want to allow my developers or my infrastructure team to be able to SSH into servers or into, you know, get a uh, run cube CTL commands against a Kubernetes cluster or access a database, but I don't want to give them direct access to that. And they may not have line of sight to that device or cluster or whatever from where they're running. So I need something to proxy that connection. That's what teleport is trying to do. So it's a cloud-based bastion. It's very similar to a bastion. It does a couple cool, they do a couple cool things. First of all, their UI, like their web UI is really nice looking, which I know like- Unusual actually. Yeah, that's the thing is like, I look at this and I look at some of the other UIs that are out there for that are similar solutions. And I'm like, now you put together like a really uh, slick and nice to use interface. And that goes a long way, <laughs> longer than some people think. Um, yeah. For a certain group of, of folks. The other thing that was cool about their solution is they basically run an internal PKI for each um, tenant. And that internal PKI uses certificates for all the authentication across all the different things you're going to access. So there's no passwords at all. And additionally, their solution doesn't store any passwords for any of the remote systems that you're accessing. So everything is done through certificates that have a defined lifetime. And when that lifetime is up, that certificate is no longer valid. That's pretty, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In terms of actually using it, you either have to install an agent on the target node, or you can set up a proxy that is in the same network as that node and you would connect to that proxy like a bastion host and then it would handle tunneling your connection to 
whatever that thing is you want to access. They had both a cloud, like SaaS option, and also a self-hosted option. So the self-hosted option uses the open source project. The cloud option, you have to start a trial with them if you wanted to use that. But I mean, the self-hosted option seems like it was pretty easy to set up if you want to do that. Um, the free version only supports GitHub for or local users for authentication. If you sign up for their enterprise, then it will integrate with Okta or Azure AD or whatever identity provider you're using. Right. Interesting. I mean, it feels like a crowded field, but I'll look at the UI and, and then I will judge accordingly. Yeah, I don't. It's not as crowded uh, as you might think. There's not that Do many they use the blink tag? Hmm? Do they use the blink tag? I want to know how serious they are about this product. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <clears throat> so, yeah, that was a neat solution. Um, got a few more. Uh, the next one, I don't love the spelling. It's the company's called Check, but it's spelled C H K K. No, 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 no. Listen. No, that's, that's, no, no. There's two difficult things in the world of software development. Naming things and cache coherence. <laughs> I don't know how they do on the cache coherence, but I don't, they kind of, uh, they failed on the naming side of things. But I guess it has to be something that you can easily search in a console and that they can register with a tra as a trademark. So check is born. Um, I talked to I talked to one of the founders. Uh, this is like a new startup. They just got seed funding from Sequoia Capital. What they do is they're trying to improve Kubernetes security, availability, and making upgrades of your cluster a little less risky. If you're if you've seen this or talked to people who do this, but I certainly know of organizations that instead of upgrading the Kubernetes cluster, what they'll do is just deploy a side by side cluster yep. and move Build all the workloads and over. Migrate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because upgrading is so fraught that they don't even want to try to do it in place. So this company is trying to not only help with that, but also just identify potential issues with your existing clusters. And the way that they're doing that is they're culling information from blog posts on the internet, uh, open source projects that Kubernetes is based off of, like etcd, um, Calico, et cetera, and also issues that have been submitted by Czech users themselves. So they're taking all this information in, and then they're using a combination of machine learning and human curation to create what they're basically calling, um, I forget the exact terminology they use, but they're signatures. So in the same way that a CVE has a signature, this, uh, they called it ArcSig or something, is the signature for potential security issues, configuration issues, uh, et cetera. So they will scan your clusters, they'll look for matching signatures of stuff that they have in this signatures database, and then flag potential security or configuration issues for your clusters. And in terms of upgrades, you can model an upgrade. You can say, this is the upgrade that I'm planning. Does that match any potential issues in the signature database? And it might come up with the thing that says, oh, you're currently running, I'm just going to make up numbers here, but like etcd 
And if you move to Kubernetes 1.27, that is incompatible with 1.9. So you're going to have to upgrade your etcd as well. That's the sort of thing that is buried in like the release notes for like 1.27 that you might not catch. Well, until you do the upgrade. (laughs) Until you catch it in the worst possible way. So that's what they're trying to do is just take all this unstructured data that lives out on the internet and in these open source projects and turn it into something that a machine can actually use to analyze clusters and pull out potential issues. I feel like VMware did something somewhat similar um, <clears throat> for uh, vSphere at one point where it would kind of like munge up the the KB articles and whatnot into machine readable or machine usable data to scan vSphere clusters. Do you remember that? Yeah, and you would get a list. Yeah. It was hel- I mean, it was sort of helpful, but it became less helpful when we sort of commoditized ESXi hosts. We're just like, ah, who gives a crap? Re- reinstall. <laughs> I think as vSphere environments became more complicated and you added in vSAN and NSX and accelerator cards and all that, it did become useful again because that combination of hardware and firmware and all that could really lead to some issues. So... I can see this being extremely useful for people who are using running a lot of Kubernetes clusters and need something to kind of do this level of scanning and kind of flag up security issues. So does it get down to the like firmware level? It stays at the Kubernetes components level. Okay. So it's looking at operating system (laughs) versions and then all the different component versions of your cluster. Uh, and any open source projects that you've deployed as plugins right. to your arc, to your clusters. No, you just the only reason I asked is you reminded me of a horror story where um, a very specific minor patch level of ESXi paired with a very specific minor patch level of firmware for HPE servers caused network traffic to stop trafficking <laughs> after. Ex- I want to say it was like exactly fifty minutes of operation. I vaguely remember this. So for most of an hour, it worked beautifully, and then it just stopped. (laughs) And if I remember correctly, it didn't purple screen either. It just stopped. Yep. (laughs) Good times. Hope you have ILO set up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, two more. Um, Venify is focused on being the, quote, control plane for machine identity. And this is pretty cool just because I'm a big proponent in using machine identity whenever you can and making that identity sort of the core of how services talk to each other. Uh That's kind of like the whole thing behind zero trust is everything should have an identity and should have to prove that identity before it's allowed to access anything. Right. That's actually kind of difficult to do. (laughs) It sounds great in theory, right? Because people are using multiple clouds and they have Kubernetes, which has its own identity system involved, and then you might have some local identity system on top of that, and you have your whole PKI, there's just a lot of ways that identities can be assigned to machines. So having something that can sit over that entire ecosystem and monitor identities as they're assigned, help with issuing stuff like TLS certificates, those kinds of things. That's basically what Venify is there for. 
um, so they can ma manage, monitor, and analyze all the machine identity identities that are being used in your environment, uh, which helps simplify your management and your administrative overhead of all that. I've heard of Venify before. They've been around for a, a minute at least, right? Yeah, I yeah. Mean, that's this, they're not, not the a brand only... new startup. They've they've yeah. been around. This is something that they've been doing for a while, right? And the only reason, I mean, I remember looking into this for completely Kubernetes unrelated reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. They are not just Kubernetes. They do identity across all the major clouds as well. Right. Which and that, like you're saying, like that, that's the better way to do it, and it's the more complicated way to wrap your brain around. Like honestly, not to give you more work, but I will give you more work. Um, this feels <laughs> like like what they do and why it's important feels like it could be its own topic. It probably because anytime you could. see if whenever you see a phrase like simplifies PKI management, <laughs> a chill enters the room. <laughs> Because PKI management is never simple. That's, that's, yeah. Yeah, so that's the thesis. When I say simplify, I mean hides PKI <laughs> management from you. <laughs> Don't look behind the curtain. Seriously, it, it would be terrifying to like sort of lift the carpet and be like, oh God. Um, but it seems like it's doing, it seems like they're doing a decent job because uh, they're still around. So good for them. Um, the last one is Wing, um, which is behind the Wing Lang, which every time I say wow. it, I think of Wang Chung, which yeah. has nothing to do with it. But you know, again, naming, it's hard. What Wing Lang is, is it's a new programming language that is meant for combining infrastructure's code and application code. So it makes infrastructure's code or infrastructure, I should say, a first class citizen in the language, as opposed to an afterthought or bolt on using a library. Hmm. They're, I'm not convinced. Keep talking. Yeah. So they're targeting primarily developers by trade and not sort of ops folks. So if you're heavily in the ops world, you're probably using stuff like Ansible and Terraform, which is declarative and script heavy. Wing is, I won't say it's a compiled language because it doesn't actually build to like an executable, but it does compile to something else. And you can tell it what you want it to emit because it can emit Terraform in uh, JSON-based Terraform configurations, it can emit uh, JavaScript, or it can do uh, CDK, which is the cloud development kit for AWS. So it can emit something else which will actually be used to deploy your infrastructure. So it's a bit of an intermediary. What was really interesting to me about their product, uh, about the language, I should say, is that they're trying to abstract common cloud components of all the different major clouds into just one thing. So they have the concept of a bucket, like a storage bucket in Winglang, but that storage bucket is not specific to AWS or Google or Azure. It's just a generic bucket that you can add to your code. And then you actually tell it when you compile, 
which provider platform you want to create that bucket on. So you can say you can use the same code to create a configuration for AWS or one for Azure. That was kind of wild to me. Okay. And so the idea here is when you put together your application, you're going to know in advance you need object storage here. You're going to need access, identity access there. Mm -hmm. And you're not, <clears throat> you're not an expert on the cloud infrastructure, nor do you really want to be to, this, to the extent that you would write IAC external to the application. Correct. So I might know I need a messaging queue. I need some object storage. I need like a MySQL database and I need some uh, functions as a service or something. I can create all of those objects in an abstract way in Winglang and then target a particular platform when I compile it and it will create the Terraform configuration or, you know, whatever that is specific to the cloud or the platform I'm now targeting. Um, right. And one of the cool things that he showed me was because you're writing an application that's going to leverage this bucket, Winglang will also create the IAM roles and policies on AWS so that the application can access that bucket. It's just allow all star dot star, right? Yes, absolutely. As, <laughs> as God intended. That was cool. Cause he showed me like an application needs to put objects in the bucket. So when he compiled it, it only had put permissions on the bucket. And then he updated the application code to also delete objects from the bucket. And the role was updated to include the deal, the delete permission. Nice. I was like, that is pretty slick. <laughs> All right. Um, the other cool thing is they have a local simulator that will run. So you don't actually have to target a specific cloud. You can have it run in a local simulator to see how your application code would act without actually deploying infrastructure. Helpful. Very helpful. So, so what I definitely worth checking out, especially if you're more on the development side of things, I want to dive into it some more. And it's interesting that it's not. It's not using Python. It's not using Go. It's its own language. So you get to learn a new language, which everybody Yay! loves to do. <laughs> um, so those were the cool vendors I saw. Uh, in terms of general trends, just walking around, talking to people, security was freaking everywhere. Everyone was talking about the need to secure Kubernetes. I think that's because there's been so many high-profile breaches in the last year that security is like top of mind for almost everyone. Right. The other big undercurrent was, say it with me, everybody, AI. Pretzels. Oh. AI pretzels. They can <laughs> unfold themselves. They, what was interesting was like, all the AI I saw was entirely companies leveraging AI in their solution. There were very few vendors there that we're talking about how to deploy AI in your cloud or your Kubernetes cluster to do AI things. It was, no, we're using AI as part of our solution now. Um, and that was actually Which, a complaint from a few people is like, where are the vendors that show me how to do AI, not to use their AI? Uh, well, they read the market and we're like, that's not gonna be, um something enough people are going to buy. So here's a book. I, I think 
the more likely answer is those vendors have their own conference on how to do AI. <laughs> and if you are really interested, you'll go to that conference. Right. That's fair. Yeah. Overall, it, like I said, the energy was fine. It was fine, Chris. You sound super convinced. Well, so what I noticed was at this point, everybody kept talking about how the fact that Kubernetes is kind of boring now. Like the platform has matured and is stable enough that all the exciting stuff is happening on the fringes and not in Kubernetes proper, which is why I said like at the very beginning that cloud native con is part of the name and is actually in a sense becoming more relevant. And that's because Kubernetes is becoming boring and less relevant. Right. Which I guess is sort of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, that's what you want. Yes. From this kind of a platform. <laughs> Stable and boring. Yeah. Yeah. That is what you want. And it's okay if Kubernetes is no longer the sole focus of the conference and it becomes more about cloud-native applications and management. That's where the cool stuff seems to be happening. So that was my whole experience at KubeCon, Cloud Native Con, Chicago 2023. Seems vaguely worth it. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So, Crank, congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now you can go sit on a couch, order food from whatever that weird restaurant I went to was, and... um play well what am i playing right now i'm playing a video game uh horizon zero dawn go play that it's really good you've earned it <laughs> you can find more about this show by visiting our linkedin page just search chaos lever or go to our website chaoslever.cal where you'll find show notes blog posts and general tomfoolery we'll be back next week later this week actually to see what fresh hell is upon us ta-ta for now still can't read it right nope nope I, I wonder what the Uber Eats cost would be if you ordered a pizza from Chicago. Like your delivery fee is $7,406. <laughs> it will be there in about three hours. <laughs>